FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thank you all for being here for Political Rewind today. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, glad to be back with you. I, I took a few days off around the 4th of July holiday to rest up a little bit and to uh, <laughs> to do not much. I, my whole family, we continue to shelter in place, so mostly I sat around the house and uh, just rested, relaxed a little bit, which was good for me, to tell you the truth. I hope each of you out there is getting an opportunity now that we're in the middle of summer to take some time for yourselves. Um, I want to thank Donna Lowry, who hosted in my place yesterday, and Kevin Riley, who was in here on the show on Monday. Thanks to both of them for being with us. Um, I kind of had hoped to come back to a show that would have just, you know, a very straight line of topics that we could talk about one after the other, and it would be very clear um, from one subject to the next. But, folks, we're drinking through a fire hose this morning. There is so much happening in the state of Georgia, in the city of Atlanta right now, much of it intertwined, uh, that we're going to just, we'll, we'll do our best <laughs> to march through the extraordinary times we're living in. Um, the virus is spiking dramatically. Uh, over the weekend, we had nearly 30 people shot in the city of Atlanta in gunfighting. Um, an eight-year-old girl, as you all know by now, tragically killed uh, near the Wendy's, where uh, Rayshard Brooks was himself killed. Uh, the governor of Georgia calls in the National Guard to protect state uh, resources from uh, what he would call angry mobs. It, Greg Bluestein, I just want to start. We, we really are in a point. I, I said in a note that I sent, well, I'm sorry, I should introduce everybody. See, I've been out of the loop for a while. Greg Bluestein is here. He, of course, is political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Uh, glad to have him with us as he is on most Wednesdays. I'll get back to you with that question, Greg, uh, but not before I introduce uh, Dr. Andra Gillespie, who is a professor of political science at uh, Emory University. Also, though, uh, the director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for Race at Emory, a title we don't talk about enough when we introduce you, Andre, and uh, my fiscal year resolution is to make sure we uh, talk about that more because the work you're doing there is very important, isn't it? Uh, yeah, no, so it's a place where we can convene and enable scholars to do research on issues related to race and difference. We run programs, so once the school year gets started up, we'll have our weekly colloquium session. And we'll have our quarterly public dialogue series in the evening, so we'll do it all online. We will talk more about it. It's going to be, I think what you're doing there is going to come into play frequently as we move ahead with Political Rewind in the times we're living in. Uh, And we also have uh, Dr. Uh, Audrey Haynes, professor of political science at the University of Georgia and the head of the Applied Political Science Program, uh, the founder of the program, where, Audrey, you train young people, young, innocent, unsuspecting people (laughs) to go into careers in politics, correct? 
Yes, we do. And uh, many of them uh, at the end of the program uh, move on to work in those uh, political venues. And then there's always a few who decide that they're going to do something else. So they, they, it is a program well, I, that it exposes them to what's out there in terms of the jobs and the pressures. Well, I appreciate all of you being here today. Greg, let me go back to where I started. And again, apologize for not introducing everybody right away. Um, Greg, I, I wrote a note to all of you over the weekend, uh, or yesterday, and I essentially said, uh, I don't mean to be overly dramatic, but it feels to me like our society is coming unraveled, at least in Atlanta, with uh, uh, Army troops, National Guard troops in, in the streets, dozens of people shot over the weekend, um, a mayor now who has tested positive, along with her husband and one of her children for COVID-19, uh, arguing with the governor, saying, why haven't you mandated that we wear masks uh, in the state of Georgia? Um, the governor shooting back, why haven't you protected the citizens of Georgia? It, Greg, it feels like we're entering a period, it's the Wild West in some ways right now. Am I exaggerating way too much? No, I mean, it really does feel like we're the epicenter of, of, of the entire national conversation over the two biggest crises that, rock, that are rocking the nation, and that's uh, the, the pandemic and the battle over, over the, the, the protests over social justice and peace, racial peace. Um, and I think that, that with the mayor re- revealing that she's tested positive for coronavirus with the open kind of the, the open fraying of the relationship between the governor and Mayor Bottoms, who have always been kind of had an uneasy peace and an uneasy truce. Now it's, you know, now it's kind of unraveled, uh, the, the word you mentioned earlier. Um, I, I think that we really are at the heart of this of this national conversation right now. And it's going to be um, really um, fascinating to see how how it plays out from here on. Yeah, Andra, what, what do you think about my my kind of bleak assessment of where we are right now? Well, I agree. The world is upside down. And so I think everybody is trying to figure out how to turn it right side up. Um, And people are still talking past each other. Um, And people are taking their uh, position and they're sort of doubling down on whatever their position is. And there are a lot of people who are not actually using this as the opportunity that it could have been just to have dialogue, to actually understand where people are coming from, and to try to see the places where you can find common ground while actually still kind of sticking to one's original principles. Audrey, why don't you weigh in on this as well? And Audrey, you may, I mean, maybe one of you on the panel does. I don't mean to suggest it would be you, Audrey. I was uh, trying to look back and figure out the last time National Guard troops were uh, empowered by a governor of Georgia to come in and uh, uh, be in the streets of, of Georgia, and I, I frankly couldn't find it. I don't know if we go all the way back uh, decades or, 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 or when, but it, it's certainly a virtually unprecedented event. It is, and I apologize for not knowing that piece of um, historical information myself, but um, I would say that one of the things that this circumstance does is it really reveals some of the fragilities and the fault lines that we have within our state and our community. You know, we assume that people are working together, that there are relationships there, but I'm sure Greg knows from covering a lot of Georgia politics as well as the rest of the panel, you know, they've always been there. And this stress sort of 
exacerbates them, you know. And, and again, as Andra said, instead of looking at it as an opportunity to try and fix problems now that they are so visible. And I think there are voices that are trying to do that. I think there are a lot of people. There's a great need among members of the community and the polity to bring back some sort of normalcy. But seeing these um, activities and individuals using them for their political goals or using them for opportunities uh, to take advantage of the situation is uh, really devastating in many ways. And we need to move forward somehow. And we need our leadership to really take on the mantle of doing that. Um, and yet, Greg, we're seeing all of this uh, end up being fodder for partisan politics. Uh, Senator Perdue, uh, Yesterday, I think it was on Fox, said, uh, while we're working on important reforms of policing in Washington, he goes on and says, and this is a quote, we've seen an absence of leadership in the city of Atlanta that has resulted in lawlessness and violent crime surging in our streets. Nearly 100 people have been shot in the last month alone. True. One of the individuals who tragically lost her life this weekend was an eight-year-old girl named Sicoria Turner. I commend Governor Kemp for stepping up to fill the leadership void in Atlanta so that we can put an end to the radical elements that are perpetrating violent crimes and destruction under the false claim of seeking justice. And, Greg, here's where this becomes problematic. Um, an, an awful lot of the Republican response, as we just saw with Purdue, wants to equate the protests that have gone on peacefully in Atlanta, in cities across Georgia, in other cities across the country, with these outbreaks of violence, which are, in fact, reprehensible, but now we're seeing them uh, brought together by some who, uh, I think, see partisan advantage in painting with a broad brush. Yeah, and, um, you know, you're hearing the same sort of rhetoric about the Wendy's um, site uh, from, from Republicans up and down the ballot. Um, you're hearing it from uh, Doug Collins. You're hearing it from Senator Kelly Leffler. You're, you're hearing it from down-ticket candidates as well who, who are trying to exploit uh, or are trying to use, you know, the lawlessness at that, the chaos at that Wendy site to, to paint the entire uh, movement for, for racial justice as, as one of, of lawlessness and, and violence. And, and that's just not the case. Um, the vast, vast, vast majority of the protests that we've covered, that we've been monitoring that we've been watching that have, that have really sparked a lot of already a lot of concrete changes in Georgia have been peaceful um, demands for, for equality, justice, and an end to police brutality. Um, and uh, what we're seeing is a few incidences of, of violence, uh, some that have nothing, you know, nothing to do with this, uh, most that have nothing to do with the, the movement at all, um, you know, shootings at, at parties in Edgewood Avenue over the weekend, things like that. Um, used to equate to link with the movement to defund police and other things, um, and, and we're going to see a, hear a lot more about that um, over the next few months because this has become um, the the, um, the the partisan sort of uh, line right now. So I mainly have a question for Greg in terms of Governor Kemp's um, order. The troops are there to protect state-owned property which means that they're not really there to protect the site where Richard Brooks died. Um, they certainly aren't going to go down the street from where I live in Edgewood and protect people, right? So it seems like the order was actually being made in response to the vandalism against the Department of Public Safety building in Atlanta. 
and less about sort of these outbursts of violence, as bad as they are, and as out of hand as the situation does look, particularly on University Avenue in Atlanta, where it looks like they just let armed guys just kind of run rampant over the place as opposed to um, actual having sort of official police officers do that. So in some ways, it seems like a bit of a smokescreen to me. And I think it's also really important to sort of say that Governor Kemp is, is, is using vandalism against state property to make this larger statement about violence, broadly speaking, but those troops aren't necessarily empowered to actually address that type of, of, of violence as well. But you can make Democrats look bad in the process. You can make Keisha Lynch Bottoms look bad in the process by just sort of saying that I'm putting out troops to quell lawlessness. And part of it's because um, the, the mayor didn't ask, didn't formally request um, the governor to put the, deploy those troops to the city. So he, he could, he, he, his emergency powers allow him, uh, apparently, according to his aides, to deploy National Guard troops wherever he wants in the state of Georgia, including, including that Wendy said if he wanted to. But because the mayor didn't make that request, um, he limited it to, to the state capitol, uh, the Department of Public Safety building, and um, the governor's mansion, three sites in the city that, where he felt he needed more security. It's a very, very tense situation. Um, but from what I understand, communication broke down between the governor's office and, and city hall um, about public safety over the weekend. Um, yeah, go ahead, Andre. Yeah, I mean, and so, but I mean, I think that's important for like our listeners to understand. None of those are anywhere near where this violence broke out. But the closest one would be the shooting on Auburn Avenue, where a lot of the people who got shot over the weekend were shot. But like, so I mean, if you're protecting Buckhead, um, you are not anywhere near Southwest Atlanta. You're nowhere near University Avenue. And so we have to sort of see how much of this is performance and how much of this is actually about public safety. So to follow up on that, I sort of have a question, but in reading the, um, the, the governor's order and some of his words, you know, he seemed to imply to me that one of the reasons he was um, sending out the, the National Guard to protect those, those state-related areas was to free up the Atlanta resources to do their due diligence in those areas with violence. You know, so, I mean, the rhetoric that we're hearing being spun in other places, in some ways, don't sort of match up what we see in the, the actual order itself, perhaps. Like, they, it, you know, it's serving a dual purpose um, in, in politics as well. Maybe that relates to what Andre was saying. But regardless, it is uh, a time for them to come together and do some work because people are just not being protected. As one of you already pointed out, uh, the mayor uh, was not informed uh, by the governor, uh, the mayor herself. Now, Greg has just said there was some kind of negotiations going on between the offices. The mayor claims she wasn't informed herself that the governor had actually decided, made the choice to bring the troops in. Let's listen to what Mayor Bottoms told uh, a media outlet about just that. I think it's it's just this this perfect storm of distress in America. I think that that people are obviously anxious and and even angry about COVID-19. Loved ones are dying, people are losing their jobs. I think there's a lot of frustration 
a lot of angst, and I, I think that the rhetoric that comes out of the White House doesn't help it at all. It doesn't give people much hope, and I think that it's all converging together, and we're seeing it happen and spill out much of the streets in Atlanta, and we're seeing it across the country, and then you add on top of that the cases that we've all witnessed um, of police brutality, and it, it has all come together it just in, in a violent way. So, Audrey, that was her description. She was on Good Morning America yesterday to make that statement and uh, had said previously that, you, you know, she that was her uh, explanation of what's going on. But she had also said she was uh, distressed by the fact that she wasn't given a chance to weigh in on whether the troops should come to Atlanta. Audrey? Yes, my understanding was that the um, the the line was that the chiefs of staff of both offices had had a conversation. Uh, maybe uh, Greg can confirm whether that was accurate or not. But, um, you know, regardless of the situation, they need to be communicating because the state is in a situation of crisis and um, it's likely to get worse before it gets better. And if the public doesn't see their leaders in the mayor of Atlanta and the governor, as well as mayors of all the cities taking some kind of action of some kind, um, in, in a direction that actually does something for the community, that will be harmful to their political uh, uh, situation in the future. I mean, and it is tough, too, because uh, Mayor Bottoms is in the public eye, um, in the national public eye right now, because she is a part of the discussion uh, on the Biden campaign as a potential vice presidential nominee. And, um, you know, Governor Kemp is in a situation, too, where uh, – you know, he has uh, a Senate candidate running for office that was uh, his handpicked choice. So, I mean, there's so many political dimensions to this while we are in a crisis that is real. And, you know, people are sick and it is having an economic and a, a public health impact. So, you know, this may be more devastating than we know in multiple dimensions for people. And that's what's... Um Fascinating to me, I guess, is the, is the right word, because Mayor Bottoms, it was her handling of the pandemic and the protests that really elevated her national profile um, a few weeks ago and made her, cemented her as a, a top-tier potential running mate for Joe Biden. And now, over these next few weeks, it's she's confronting two vast challenges with both those. I mean, she personally is fighting her own battle against corona, the coronavirus right now after revealing Two days ago, that she she contracted the disease, and the the you know the fallout over her handling of of, of the demonstrations and the violence at the Wendy site um, is is really going to be pivotal to how she's perceived nationally, too, especially as Republicans start amping up their attacks, saying that she's asleep at the world, that she's she's too preoccupied by the national attention to focus on her own backyard, um, and you know we we in Atlanta know the nuances of all that, but it'll be Interesting to see how she's painted nationally um, with 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 her handling of, of the fallout. So I want to take up uh, an aspect of this, Andra, and start with you, if I may, that I think uh, uh, deserves some attention. Um, we all know that Governor Kemp has said he refuses to mandate that Georgians wear masks. Uh, just one of the three keys that public health officials tell us will protect us to some extent against the virus, masking, social distancing, washing your hands. We know all this. 
Uh, he is. He did a mask tour of the state. Greg, you may have been on parts of that tour with him. Um, to, to as an example that people should wear masks, but he will not mandate it. And we also know that when the legislature passed a, the emergency order that is still in effect dealing with coronavirus, uh, one of the aspects of that was to say that local municipality cities could take no action that exceeded what the state of Georgia itself did, which would mean that you couldn't have a mandatory mask order in place since the state won't have one. But we've got rebels now. We've got Savannah, where Mayor Van Johnson put a mask mandatory mask order in place. We've now got Eastlake has joined East Point. that. East Point. Um, the, I'm sorry, East Point has joined that. Uh, and now Mayor Bottoms, Andra, has said she too. Last night, Athens put a mandatory mask or requirement in place. And now, Andra, uh, the city of Atlanta, Mayor Bottoms has announced we're putting mandatory masks in place. So what do we make of all this that the governor continues to say, you know, they, I don't want to mandate it. And cities are saying, sorry, we're going to violate this emergency order and do it ourselves. Well, I mean, I think they are putting Governor Kemp on notice to enforce his executive order. So, I mean, we're going to see whether or not he actually tries to officially preempt them in some way, shape or form. I think the place where this does come up is that if somebody is forcibly removed from someplace because they're not wearing a mask in public or somebody is is, is, is signed or given some type of legal notice, whether or not they choose to sue uh, over the fact that they said that the local authority didn't have any, um, didn't have the power to actually be able to enforce this type of, of, of rule or, uh, or law. Um, but I think the bigger issue is that cities are, and mayors are actually looking at the gravity of the situation and they are saying that, look, they can't afford from just a, a human health standpoint and a, and a lives and mortality standpoint. Um, to not say anything to try to stem the tide of the spread of the virus. So if the governor is going to be reluctant to do this, then in their city, they're going to at least do something, even if it's technically not within their power to do so. Well, Audrey, I, we can't read Governor Kemp's mind. Uh, I grant you that, but we can speculate. Uh, Republicans have been across the country incredibly reluctant to try to mandate the wearing of masks uh, for what seemed to be, number one, I don't know, number one, because President Trump has been equivocal about whether masks really are important or not. Tucker Carlson went on a rant last night, I read, on his Fox News show about how masks don't protect anybody. They're worthless. Why, do you, why, is, uh, why are public health people saying that they're necessary? Um so there's that aspect of this. And then there's this reluctance, it seems, by uh, more, more Republicans, certainly, to feel the government should step in and require citizens to step up in the middle of this pandemic. Uh, it's all very uh, confusing to me. Yes, and there's always that irony of, um, you know, small government, local autonomy, and, uh, you know, um, all of these other conflicting principles that we see manifested. But, you know, here is potentially one uh, uh, reason that might be happening. So some, some recent uh, data that has come out has basically said that about one-third to one-half of Trump's support, 
people that come out and vote and have you know been supportive of him are actually not people who are strongly affiliated with the Republican Party. So, for example, if Trump decides to throw somebody under the bus, whether it's Governor Kemp or anybody else, those likely voters are, are people who may not vote or not support or support somebody else in a primary. So that's always held over the head of a lot of of our current uh, Republican, uh, well, I won't use the word establishment, um, incumbents. And I think there's a real fear. And, you know, I can't read Governor Kemp's mind, but my sense is that he recognizes the value of wearing a mask. He wears one. He wears one in public. He has said that multiple times that masks make a difference. And anybody, I, I guarantee you, try to spit while you have a mask on, right? I mean, uh, there's so much evidence that masks do have an impact, um, and we have far too many uh, bits of commentary going on. Our governor is saying one thing, but he's also fighting a lot of propaganda within his own party, but he's not going to change behavior by encouraging, right? And I really don't see much of a public um, campaign to encourage masks. If they really wanted to do that, we probably would have everybody wearing a mask, but there is some fear of uh, a revolution within their own party, you know, and I think they don't want to see that conflict. All right. Uh, we got a lot more to talk about on today's Political Rewind, uh, and we'll do that in a minute. Kelly Leffler has put herself in the middle of an interesting uh, conversation about Black Lives Matter. We're going to get to that with our panel right after we pause. This is Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. We're back with Dr. Andre Gillespie of Emory University, Dr. Audrey Haynes, University of Georgia, and uh, AJC political reporter Greg Blusney. Uh, Greg, uh, Kelly Leffler has uh, had a lot to say. She's been very outspoken in the past few days on a number of issues. Uh, first of all, she uh, was uh, commenting on uh, Fox News uh, the other day about what she calls the Democrats' lawlessness, Democrats' lawlessness, their anti-police agenda. Uh, the news release that her office put out said she slams the lawlessness of mob violence, condemns the radical anti-police agenda that has taken hold in Democratic cities across the country. Uh, she's a sponsor of legislation to prevent jurisdictions from slashing funding for law enforcement officers and, uh, and, of course, she's also signed on to a bill that somehow adds to protections for Second Amendment rights. Uh, so there's that, Greg. Uh, she's she's it, clearly firmly in the Trump camp. We already knew that. That's another example. But now comes another uh, position she's taking that I find really fascinating. Kelly Leffler, part owner of the Atlanta Dream, a WNBA team, basketball team, has now come out and condemned 
her own league for wanting to put Black Lives Matter sign uh, lettering on the back of all of the uh, players in uh, the league. And here, here's what she, she said in her letter to the commissioner. Uh, I adamantly oppose the Black Lives Matter political movement, which has advocated for the defunding of police, called for the removal of Jesus from churches and the disruption of the nuclear family structure, harbored anti-Semitic views, promoted violence and destruction across the country. I believe it is totally misaligned with the values and goals of the WNBA and the Atlanta dream where we support tolerance and inclusion. Some of those claims about Black Lives Matter seem to me to come out of some strange left field that some not a place I've ever explored. <laughs> Yeah, and, and, and her her um, her letter instantly um, kind of went viral on online, and um, many members of the WNBA, many players, many former players, including uh, at least one player of the Atlanta Dream, the team she co-owns, criticized her for taking that stance and called for her. Uh, the WNBA Players Union called for her to leave the league, to be removed from the league or sanctioned. The WNBA is in a tricky spot. They said she's not. She hasn't had a day-to-day role in the league's operation for, for at least the past year, um, but said that it values tolerance and, and it will continue its plans um, to have to have players honor the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, it's a very interesting place that she's she's in right now. Um, obviously, um, she's she's gaining a lot of um, attention from conservatives as well, and I expect this to be at the forefront of her events later today and really the rest of the campaign, um, she might cast herself as a martyr, uh, you know, a conservative martyr who, who is, who's being castigated by left-wing liberals over her stance. Um, I don't see how this ends with her still um, playing any sort of significant role in, in, the, in the WNBA. I'm just not sure how, I don't know what will happen with her stake in the team. Um, but but I I think she's she didn't do this by accident, right? She calculated her campaign calculated this would this would be a huge viral moment, and it was the talk of, of sports talk radio and, and and even shows like ESPN um, all last night. Um, so this was a calculated move um, that I think that they they have they feel like uh, will will end up helping her in her campaign against Doug Collins. I saw him yesterday as well. And he kind of downplayed it and said, where was, where was all this stance before? Where was she, well, you know, before she was a U.S. senator, uh, why wasn't she talking about these issues when the WNBA uh, uh, had an event that, that helped Planned Parenthood, for instance, or when she posed with Stacey Abrams on the floor of the WNBA of her, of her team's playoff game? Um, so she's getting attacked from both sides of, of, of the, uh, the, the ideological spectrum over this one. Andra, as Greg points out, a lot of WNBA players have attacked her for this, but here's the one that I found really chilling, and then I want you to make whatever point you'd like. One of her former players, uh, Lycia Clarendon, says, I can't believe I ever stepped foot in Kelly's house and shared a meal with her. It's actually really hurtful to see her true colors. I had no idea why I play- while I played for Atlanta, she felt this way, but then here's the, the, the line. Uh, Happy to own us, she's African-American, as long as we stay quiet and perform. That's an incredibly chilling uh, comment to make. Go ahead, Andre. Um, and so, you know, I just want to kind of speak to Greg's point about the strategy behind it. Um, I 
and, you know, and, you know, I agree that she thought about this, but I'm still having trouble following the logic of, of, of her coming out as strongly as she did. On the one hand, I understand she's got this rightward flank challenge from Doug Collins, so she wants to look more right than he does. Um, but on the other hand, you also have to calculate, uh, one, what's the probability of my being able to best Collins? And at the end of the day, do I want to sabotage the rest of my career? Because presumably she's going to want to own things, maybe not WNBA teams, but other things after her Senate career is over. She's not planning on being a lifer in the Senate from, you know, anything that I've gathered, nor should she expect that. So for her to kind of sabotage, you know, her relationship with the WNBA and with her players, um, you know, who are her employees also shows a stunning lack of sensitivity. Um, and like, and, and she doesn't realize why these players want to make sure that they affirm their support, right? Athletes often get accused of not using their platforms for good. And they've been actively trying to correct that in the last few years. And the WNBA players want to be a part of that. In addition to that, one of the things that they're trying to do, and not just affirming that Black Lives Matter, but also affirming the female victims of police violence, is to make sure that we don't forget that police violence affects all Black people. And it doesn't just affect Black women as the mothers of victims. Black women are, in fact, victims of police violence um, as well at disproportionate rates. And so for her to not get that, especially when she you know, wants to kind of sort of put herself in a feminist vein, is something that's actually really really troubling and she could have just kept her mouth shut and I don't know if this is going to be worth it to her in the end. Just to follow up on that too, my my personal opinion or I would say my professional opinion is that in the end that this could really hurt um, Kelly Leffler and she's already put out ads against Collins that you know accused him of you know being around black people right that one was very visible and you know following up with this she puts herself in a category that looks um, very negatively uh, racist. I'm just going to put that out there. It doesn't look positive for her. And I think that there are enough Republicans out there that that message actually does not resonate with, that it will hurt her more in the campaign. And Doug Collins, for all of the support for Trump and his um, uber-conservative uh, rhetoric, yeah, has been very careful, I think, to stay away from the more incendiary uh, verbiage that is being used. So I think in the long run, this doesn't help Kelly Leffler. And it, it, it is something that uh, perhaps is campaign-oriented and being pushed by the campaign because the electorate right now is so divided, and she doesn't think she can get any crossover votes. And, and somehow or another, she is appealing to people that she thinks will vote for her but it could have a long-term back, backlash, as Andre said. Greg, um, I'm a little bit at a loss to understand this from a, the political strategy here. Um, and and I, let me sh- share a thought with you and then ask you to weigh in. And everybody else is welcome to as, as well. Um, I, I don't know who would, what her advisors are saying to her about this. Uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, if you look at almost every poll that's been done about them since George Floyd, they have uh, risen higher and higher in people's uh, personal feelings that they are doing important work, that they have become a legitimate organization. This is not Ferguson, Missouri anymore. This is not the way people felt about Black Lives Matter in the aftermath of Ferguson. 
Uh, now the organization is being seen as fighting for racial justice. So, and, okay, take that. Add to that this question about whether Governor Kemp really appointed her in the first place because he thought she had the potential to bring suburban women into the fold. Uh, I don't know how this helps in that respect. Um, so I'm finding this whole thing to be a strategy that does nothing but play to the Trump base. Donald Trump may believe he can possibly win re-election playing to his base. In the state of Georgia, I'm not sure Kelly Leffler can win by simply playing to that same base. Yeah, I mean, part of the calculus behind everything she does is the fact that it's a special election without a primary, without nominees, that features 21 candidates all on the same ballot. And I think that's, I was talking to this about with, with some operatives yesterday, trying to, trying to kind of divine why, why she's taking the stance too. And one of the things that kept coming up is that she, when Doug Collins got in this race, it, it went from her trying to broaden the party's platform to a, a basically a Republican runoff in a way um, between him and her and in 19 other candidates that will be on the same ballot. Um, and, and he, she's clearly trying to out Trump, um, uh, Collins, and and, and out conservative him this entire campaign. But what this boils down to is that she, the person who the, the candidate who ends up the Republican who ends up in a, in a runoff in January might only need twenty five percent of the vote, right? Might might not need. We're not talking forty eight, forty nine percent of the vote. Mm-hmm. We're talking um, twenty three, twenty four, twenty five, twenty six percent of the vote. So clearly, her strategy. She thinks that if she can. If she can spend the money to raise her name recognition and get her image on TV and also appeal to conservatives in this fashion, that she's standing up for, for, for against Black Lives Matter and, and for conservative values uh, in a way that, that, that Doug Collins, in her view, isn't, um, then she might she feels she might be able to get to that 23, 24, 25 percent margin. This is not your typical election strategy, right, where, where you have – a head-to-head matchup between her and Doug Collins in a runoff, or where you have, you know, a, a November election between her and a Democrat. Um, so the calculus has completely changed, and I think that this is once Doug Collins got in the race, this was their only. Um, they felt like maybe this is their only avenue, this only path to victory is, is outdoing him on the right. So, Andra, uh, Greg Bluesing points out that my thinking is wrong about this. You you can play to the base and win. Um, so, I mean, I think somebody is going to play to the base and win. I'm just not sure it's her. So I still do actually question the strategy behind this. So it's not like Doug Collins is some unknown quantity or a novice candidate. He is somebody who is extremely experienced and somebody who has extremely good relationships with members of the Republican Party in the state. There are a lot of people who are upset that Kelly Loeffler got the Senate uh, gig in the first place. So she has an uphill battle. And I think trying to sort of, you know, out Fox News Doug Collins, um, you know, could actually eventually be seen as quixotic. So, yeah, it gets her some name recognition. Um, You know, it shows that she was kind of putting some skin in the game by putting the rest of her career and her business on the line. But I'm not sure that at the end of it, people are going to want to go with her when they have somebody who they know and in many instances trust who they who could always who's also quite capable of being able to get 25 or even 30 percent um of the vote um in november audrey i'm going to give you the last word before we got to take a break 
Well, you know what? I will tell you, a lot of those people who are working in campaigns right now, um, people who are developing those strategies, they they are looking at it just like we are. There's a lot of uncertainty out there, and there's a lot of uncertainty about who's voting, what the nature of that vote is going to be in November, even in a special election. And um, I think Andra uh, pegged it right there. Uh, voters in the Republican Party probably have a bit more trust right now um, for Collins. They know who he is and what he stands for. And um, Kelly Leffler is still new, and uh, she has generated more negative coverage, um, you know, within the party and outside of the party. Even though I think uh, Governor Kemp's intentions with uh, choosing her in the beginning were laudable for expanding the party, it's the circumstances and dynamics have just taken them elsewhere. All right, let's do this. Let's get to our final break of the show, and uh, we'll come back with a lot more on Political Rewind. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to uh, Political Rewind. Um, I'm Bill Nygut again. I took the last few days off, and I should say a number of you contacted me to ask me if I was under the weather, if I was sick, did I have COVID? No, I just wanted to take a few days off, and I'm sorry that we didn't make it clearer to you that uh, I was just taking a little bit of a vacation. But thank you for your concern. It was very uh, meaningful to me that you uh, wanted me to be okay. A couple of updates for you. Cobb County School Uh, Board member uh, Sharice Davis uh, now says that the district is going to mandate masks for all students and faculty, which would be a change in policy. Uh, That's her that's what she says is happening. The school district has not yet confirmed that. Uh, 11 Live is reporting the city of Doraville says it's going to introduce a new ordinance. It's its next meeting on uh, requiring the use of masks in public. And finally, Kelly Leffler was on Twitter uh, while we were talking about her a few minutes ago, not that she was listening to us. She Here's what she, she tweeted. Trying to add more politics to sports creates more division. More than ever, we should unite around a symbol of equality and freedom, the American flag. That shouldn't be controversial. I want to take one more shot at this. And and I wish our colleague Amy Steigerwald were part of our conversation today because she, like me, is a huge fan of soccer, both here in this country and European soccer. And it strikes me that, and those of us who watch the Premier League, Bundesliga in Germany, whatever, to do that means having to assimilate the fact that there's an awful lot of racism and, and racist behavior among fans in soccer. We get that. And yet, Andrew Gillespie, it's been very powerful to me to see before every match so far, Premier League, Bundesliga in Germany, every player on the pitch before the game takes a knee out of respect or George Floyd and others who were victims of police shootings, and all of them are wearing Black Lives Matters jerseys. I got to say, Andre, if if European soccer can get to that point, I would. I think the WNBA 
good for, I, I have to be honest, my opinion is I'm glad they're doing it. Well, I mean, I'm only a casual sports observer, so I can't speak to it from that respect. But I also want to point out that while I have no objections to the flag and I love America and I love my country despite her flaws, suggesting that everybody wear an American flag is also a very political and loaded statement, especially in the context of criticizing Black Lives Matter, right? So that is sending out a dog whistle to certain people that some people are more American than others, that some people are more loyal than others. I mean, it tends to kind of correlate with race and ethnicity and, and, and national origin. So you have to be very careful about that. And so she's showing a lack of sensitivity there um, as well. And also, you have to remember the reason why uh, these women want to say that Black Lives Matter is because because of a, a psychological function that in political science we refer to as linked fate. We think that there, but for the grace of God, go we, right? That it could have been us. We could have been George Floyd. We could have been Breonna Taylor. So when we are standing up, we are standing up for this idea that we want to make sure that our lives and the lives of our families are being protected. Um, and I don't think that she gets that or is it, and she doesn't seem like she's willing to listen, especially if she wants to make political points here. Yeah. And to um, to follow up really quickly, I think what Andre just said and uh, Leffler's uh, tweet about the um, flag really play into probably the strategy point of the day, and that is led by the top down, and that is President Trump right now has um, not taken to campaign on his great success at fighting COVID-19 and, you know, reopening the economy. He has decided to fight on I'm an American, my supporters are Americans, and anyone who is against this is un-American and unpatriotic, and that the left is going to destroy America. So when we see Senate candidates talking about the flag on, this is the new um, I'm America and you're not, which does nothing but fan the flames of the division that exists. It does nothing to provide any reconciliation. And America really is, I think, desperate for that. At least the, the super majority of people want to bring together um, and, and aspire to something more positive. So it's an interesting question for this campaign is, will the negative, divisive campaign rhetoric work? Or will it be something that the population turns against? So, Greg, that leads to an interesting question. Um, we, we all watched uh, the president's Fourth of July holiday weekend performances, uh, first at Mount Rushmore, uh, and 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 then at the at the White House itself, and the divisive rhetoric that he decided would be his messaging. It was rem- reminiscent of his inaugural speech. Uh, in which he talked American carnage would stop now. Um, I, we we could again only speculate, although I'm sure we're going to see polling on this soon. What what? How do you see Georgia voters responding in a state that is at least a little purple right now? Yeah, I mean that's the big question for November because it's a state that has been solidly Republican. Um, in presidential contests since since 1996, um, that Republicans and Democrats have barely managed to contest. I mean, in 16, um, neither campaign really had a much of a presence in, in Georgia. But things are changing, and and I think Democrats are. are, are not only did the Democrats get um, very close in 2018, but Democrats outdid Republicans in the primary. 
uh, voting um, just uh, just a month ago. There's been poll after poll that shows a very, very close race. Now, there was lots of polls in 16 that showed a very close race in Georgia, too. Um, but you're seeing more a sense of energy and enthusiasm um, from Democrats um, based largely off the fact that in 2018, Stacey Abrams got within 55,000 votes of defeating Brian Kemp. It was the closest uh, gubernatorial election in Georgia in decades. Um, so, so Democrats have a have a model there that um, that that running toward the left, right? That that, that running towards the party's flank isn't necessarily a, a deal breaker for them in the way that it was in maybe in 2014 and before. Um, and so that's what's going to that's what's going to be tested this election, um, and and the support for Donald Trump um, that, that we thought in Georgia was rock solid among Republicans uh, might be starting to fray, especially in suburban areas where where some of his supporters might have held their nose and voted for him. Um, given with Joe Biden on the ballot and with with Senate Democrat candidates from Georgia who might be more palatable on the ballot, um, we're not sure how this will go. But let me take this back to almost where we started the show, uh, Dr. Gillespie. Um, we started by talking about the f- fact that we were living in the Wild West this past weekend in Georgia. Almost 30 people shot. Uh, a public uh, a safe, a state patrol office uh, ransacked in a, in a dramatic and awful way by, by a small group of, of uh, protesters. Um, so if President Trump spends the same holiday weekend— uh, talking about lawlessness in the street, Democrats encouraging mobs of violence. Um, how does what we saw here this past weekend, state, you know, National Guard in our streets, does that play into the Trump message in Georgia? Well, he's trying to um, ratchet up turnout amongst his base. So I think his base is somewhat finite and limited, but his strategy is, is he gets them all to turn out to vote he might be able to eke out an electoral college victory in the end. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to play to fear that what Democrats want is lawlessness. Now, let's ignore the fact that Joe Biden doesn't support defunding the police. In fact, if you think about that ad that's on the the air right now, that's like, you know, if you've been raped, you know, press one, we'll get back to you in five days, right? Like, those are precisely the reasons why Democrats who don't support defunding the police don't, you know, uh, you know, take that particular stance, because they do think that violent crime is real and that there needs to be somebody who's representative of the state who is addressing those kinds of issues. So what Democrats are going to have to do is they're going to have to show that the uh, sort of most progressive or most extreme points of view are actually not necessarily what the mainstream of the party is and that that's not what the standard bearer um, or his running mate probably actually stand for. So they're actually like playing to the extremes um, in a way that's actually kind of um, uh, disingenuous in, in some way, shape or form, in the same way that they don't want to be painted as being extreme, if that's possible to not be painted as extreme on, on the Trump side. So, uh, uh, Audrey, we're getting down to the end of the show, but I said a little while ago, polling shows Americans by a, by a majority now support Black Lives Matter and racial justice, the racial justice movement. Um, if that continues, it may suggest that the, this fear that the president is trying to generate uh, could fall on deaf ears uh, from, in, in, among other, only, with only his base still paying attention. Nixon won in 1968. Real quick. Because of lawlessness. So I would say that Democrats need to pay attention. And if they want to have a success, they should um, gather their forces and work together and limit that that uh, violence. 
All right. We are out of time for today's show. Uh, uh, Audrey Haynes, uh, Andre Gillespie, Greg Bluestein, thank you so much for a terrific conversation today. I'm awfully glad to be back with you and all of you out there who listen to Political Rewind. We're going to talk coronavirus tomorrow, public health on the agenda for the show. I'll see you then. And in the meantime, please take care and stay healthy. Bye-bye.